so yeah, just as a quick heads up, um, we recorded this episode um, without knowing about uh, the siege or storm of the capital that was happening while we were recording. We're just checking up on uh, on it, on the story after we're done with the recording and we just want to say we just hope you our listeners you're safe um that uh it's it's going fine and no people get get hurt and that this will just be another bad point in the final days of the donald trump government um so stay safe everyone and um on with the show where we have some um diversion from these topics theme music Take two. <laughs> Where's my microphone? It's like way out near my chest. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the first 2021 episode of Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about molecular plant biology and random things that are happening in the plant world and the general world of science. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Welcome. I'm um, Joram, I think is what I usually say at this point. We just had a very auspicious start to 2021. We started the podcast, got like two minutes in and everything crashed. So here we are, take two. Let's hope it's better than the first one. Yes. Hooray! What is like second times the charm? Um, hopefully. Let's, let's yeah. not restart a third time. But yeah, how have you we been? How, what have you done the past? Uh, yeah, we took like the last couple of weeks off which has been pretty nice. Um, we haven't been doing blogging or um, like any social media stuff. Like we just like basically dropped it for a bit um, over the New Year's break. And that's been sweet. Like I have been lounging, eating large amounts of food, um, watching unhealthy amounts of television, reading my book, doing some sewing, all like the fun, relaxing things hmm. in a way of just like not having any obligations and it's been good. I didn't realize, like, I mean, I knew I was exhausted at the end of last year, but like, whoa, whoa, I was exhausted. <laughs> um, <laughs> For me, it was also like very quiet, but um, I, I managed to hurt myself just before Christmas. I fell off my bike and I'm still enjoying the aftermath where, by, by having like my, my wrist in a bandage, hoping it will get better so I don't have to go to a doctor where I get potentially exposed to people that I want to get, don't want to get exposed to because I've been like, in heavy isolation for the last three weeks or something. I think I, I left the home like a handful of times to do some like basic groceries and that's it. So no family or anything, just everything over voice chat, um, like uh, like video chat for Christmas Eve with my family. Um, on New Year's Eve, um, we called some friends and talked to them for a bit um, around midnight. And that's really about it. Like taking care of the little one. Um, and being the least productive I've been all of 2020 in this time. I mean, there was a cool like little period in between that we're going to talk about later. Um, yeah. But apart from that, I'm just completely like turned off completely uh, to the point that I actually struggle now to get back into gear and to get productive and working again on stuff. Um, but at the same time, we're looking at an extended lockdown here, so... I don't know how much actual work I'll be able to do with no daycare or anything available. I mean, I have to say we went out like at the end of last year on a bit of a 
a chaos of frenzy of activity doing different things like we we both participated in doing this um science communication workshop um i did like a career talk also um yeah we did some some more of our book club podcast again we can talk about that a little bit later on you did your your important things like it it was pretty much like chaos at the end there and then and then i sat and spent an entire day watching bridgerton which is this um kind of bodice ripper slash period drama that um, everybody's going on about on netflix and it's like very fun and very silly and Mm. yeah escapism at its finest i would say uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i i don't know if i did much escapism um i was mostly yeah playing with the baby i mean it's also fun it's also escapist in a way like playing with trains and cars and and drawing um excavators which is my main pastime of the day these days just drawing one excavator after the other and a car in between um, you also you showed me that you you taught your baby a party trip, which is basically that you <laughs> ask him what noise a train makes, and then he just screams at you. <laughs> yeah, the, I showed I showed him the video of the screaming trains. It's just called screaming trains. It's like fifteen seconds, and somebody dubbed screams over trains. Um, I find that very funny. He found that extremely interesting because he likes trains, um, and then screaming is a sound he can make, and so <laughs> that's now it's it's sort of. I shot myself in the foot with that one because now whenever we're talking about what noise things makes, he starts to scream, which is not a pleasant yeah. noise. My view of parenthood is that you should now continue on this and like teach him that chickens say woof woof and like just completely take this kind of Calvin and Hobbes dad approach where you just completely confuse your child. Yeah. <laughs> Get him like completely messed up with the animal sounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's fun to also make up like weird animal sounds for animals where you have no idea what sound they make like i don't know what the kangaroo makes the sound a kangaroo makes or um an armadillo like what sound does an armadillo make uh, i would have to look that up so i can make up like weird noises and hopefully he <laughs> remembers some of them when we go through the books because like these children's books they like they always have a couple of animals that are the same it's always like mm. foxes and rabbits and stuff but then they have like sometimes some exotic animals where like you will probably not see the animal outside of this book for another 20 years before like it's in some weird nature documentary or in a zoo or somewhere. I mean, yeah, okay. But like in Australia, we grew up with picture books that are all like these kind of classical stories that are built around often British animals. So we have like badgers and moles and like it's completely normal that our like canon for children books is just like all these animals that just do not exist in Australia at all. Like I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but like Roald Dahl books quite prominently feature newts. And as it turns out, it's quite dry in Australia and newts generally do not like being dry. So I was just like, what, what is a newt? Like (laughs) this, like, and then like my mom's like, it's kind of like a slimy frog. Like that's, (laughs) (laughs) all of these things are just like what is this and even now like if you look at the different sort of rodent types that exist in like south american countries like it's like there's these like giant rat things that i have no idea what they are and what they're doing and i mean what their intentions are which is the most important thing because like (laughs) are they a threat to me i don't i don't know i don't know how intelligent these things are um but yeah this is (laughs) yeah so part of existing in our great world yeah, I mean that's 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 where some of the fun is in in making up the gaps uh, of my knowledge as I as I go. I mean, good thing is like 
nobody can check on it and um for a couple of years still it will be funny when he says something weird instead of embarrassing like by the time he goes to school maybe i should like make sure that he learns the right noises and everything um but until then i think it's it's fun it's more fun than mean to like make up wrong things about the world yeah this actually like segues into i don't know my one of my my new year's resolutions which is in fact to see a newt i found out today that there's something called an iberian marbled newt and of course like i had to google like something about my my new job is that i i read lots of different things about different organisms that i've not heard of so then i get to like give myself a little bit of time to google them and find out what they are and like look at the the images of them so i found out about these marbled newts which are just like cool speckled newts like it's kind of a green and 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 black mm-hmm. like speckly effect quite cool but like fairly normal but then when i was googling that i found out about giant crested newts and dear god this is like incredible it's like a long thin stegosaurus and it's got like a fluffy tail which is a bit like a cat when you frighten it it's just like this beautiful and fascinating thing and this has now become my prime aim of 2021 is that i'm going to find and see one of these like this is that's that's all i want like i made some other like vague kind of resolutions like i want to eat more beans and pulses because like that's good for the environment you know be a good person blah 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 but find a great crested newt and become friends with it is pretty much up there i would say but we'll put a link there but, but they're, they're would gorgeous. you be willing to travel to to see a newt well, not during COVID times, obviously. I'd be responsible about that. But, like, I mean, if I was invited to one's home, sure, I would travel to it. Like, I I would be happy to provide my own train ticket. And, like, I mean, look at it. You're looking, right? It's Yeah, I'm it's looking at them right now. a tiny aquatic dinosaur. And it is... It's got a yellow belly. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. It's kind of banana-shaped. That's also, like, it's... From the underside, it looks a little bit like a banana that went bad and kind of sprouted some legs. Like, it's just incredibly impressive as a creature. They they look pretty cool. Like, I just realized that the German word for them is Molch, which I, yeah, I had no idea about what a, a nude was until I heard, like, the word Molch, which is also, like, Molch. one of these beautiful sounding German words. <laughs> Molch. I think I can't even say it properly. Molch, Molch. Yeah, I... I at least I always f- thought that the mention of the word Molch in the German translations of Roald Dahl books was just because it's a whimsical wor- word. And I don't know if it's the same in, in English, if newt is also like sort of whimsical and fun as it's a word. It's very much associated with like witches and magical spells and like, you know, eye of newt is something that you would put into a potion, I would say. So it's got that kind of magical connotation. Mm-hmm. But I think also Roald Dahl was just like had quite magical stories and he I think he was obsessed with newts. I think it comes up in it's definitely in Matilda. That's what she like she knocks over the gra- the glass with a newt on it onto the the evil head headmistress Miss Trunchbull, I think. Mm-hmm. Um but I feel like this was a common newty thing. Anyway, um newts live in aquatic environments um and I think that's a really nice way to segue to our paper of the week maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's actually a good point. So let's do that. Let's start uh, with that. It's the paper of the week. Uh, Yeah, and this week's paper is something you chose, Tegan. I did. That's true. Do you want to read the title? 
imaging O2 dynamics and microenvironments in the seagrass leaf philosphere with magnetic optical sensor nanoparticles by Caspar uh, Elgetti Brodersen, Michael Kühl, Erik Trampe and Klaus Koren um, from Aarhus and Copenhagen in Denmark in the plant journal published. And fairly fresh, I think, right? It's it's It hasn't been put into proper layout yet, which means it's like published in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think it's our late December publication. And I chose this one because um, it sounded kind of cool and like futuristic-y with all those like magnetical, magnetic optical sensor nanoparticles, which we'll get into a bit later, but also because it's on seagrasses. And I think we don't really talk about seagrasses that often in the blog and the podcast, but seagrasses are incredibly cool because they're not they're not just an algae they're not just like a kelp or anything like that it's actually a plant that has been on land and in fact like a flowering plant so an angiosperm that evolved on land and then just decided at some point like maybe 70 to 100 million years ago to trot on back into the ocean so seagrasses are like the only flowering plants that exist and like actually flower in the water which is incredibly cool i would say yeah, and on top of that, the seagrasses, they are like this super important habitat. I mean, they um, not only provide food for animals, but they're also like a nesting ground for small fish. They lay their eggs in there and they find protection there while they grow up. And they also protect uh, shores and coastlines from erosion. So waves especially um, that yeah erode the, the coastlines quite heavily, um, they are protected by like large parts of, of seagrass. Uh, um, and so they are very important not only in sort of the ecological niche, but also sort of by proxy for us humans, um, because that means we have to spend less money on protecting our coastlines from erosion if we have healthy populations of seagrasses uh, in front of our coastlines. Exactly. Um, so I think like before we discuss what's actually going on in this paper, we should sort of break down the title a bit because it is a bit of a mouthful. So it's imaging oxygen dynamics this is like looking visualizing um the sort of change in oxygen like how the, the concentrations and micro environments so sort of like small regions in the seagrass leaf phylosphere and this phylosphere is basically a term for all of the different microorganisms that live in and around um, the the phyllus, so like the leaf and the stems, um, and also like it can be like the flowers and stuff of of the plant. So there's like a seagrass; it's growing um, in the water, but it also has a whole lot of other things kind of growing on top of it. So we've got like this leaf phyllosphere, or these these microorganisms growing on the leaf. And then they're using magnetical, magnetic optical sensor nanoparticles. So these are like very small particles, um, which are magnetic optical sensors. We'll go into that a little bit um, later. But they're using those to actually do this visualization of the oxygen dynamics in this phylosphere. Yeah. Um, and yeah, oxygen is a very important molecule in this context. And... Um, the interesting or the, the, the thing that I got to think about reading this paper is um, a question that I never really thought about before is that plants underwater, they also need oxygen because they also do respiration the way um, all plants do and the way also we do. That's why we need oxygen as well. Um, but underwater oxygen is not as available as in the air, um, like uh, in on, on ground when they're growing in the atmosphere. 
when they grow in the atmosphere, they have these stomata, and that leads to like they uh, make gas ex gas gas exchange possible. So carbon dioxide can get out of the leaves and oxygen get in. So pretty straightforward. But underwater, it's a little bit more complicated. And so um, underwater, they are pretty much two ways that plants can get oxygen that they can use for respiration. And the first one is just diffusion. So there is some oxygen um, soluble in the water, uh, and that can diffuse. Uh, so when there's a less oxygen in the plant than is in the water surrounding, then the oxygen has a tendency to go into the plant and create a sort of equilibrium and oxygenate the plant tissue. Um, that is sort of a slow process and um, creates not like doesn't get you more oxygen than what is in the water into the plant. So there is a second me uh, mechanism, and that's the production of oxygen during photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, A word that, <laughs> that makes me struggle every <laughs> single time. Um, it's but, hard in German, like for a German native. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, in photosynthesis, <laughs> you at the very first step, um, water is split into oxygen and uh, protons and oxygen at this point is not important to the plant so it sort of is leaving the plant or like it's creating a lot of oxygen and so plants can use some of it then for respiration and they're actually like pumping it down um, to the roots. Yeah, and that's important because the roots themselves are like not only in water, but then they're also embedded in sort of the sediment, you know, the the earth of the, <laughs> the water. Yeah. Um, so it's basically like your house plant that you've completely overwatered, which now has like soil and then also water in it. So it's, it's like just very hard for these poor roots to get access to oxygen through the the low oxygen water but then like also this like sediment is is really a big problem um and this means that the roots can basically end up dying by not getting enough oxygen so you know roots have got to respire too and as you see with your overwatered houseplants when you don't get enough oxygen they can die they can rot um and of course if you kill the roots of the plant this ultimately means that you will kill the plant um and as you already said like we don't want to kill our seagrasses because they're super important for coastal regions. So yeah, especially in communities or plants that grow underwater, um, you find that they don't grow uh, alone by themselves. They grow in communities with together with other organisms. And in this case, uh, seagrass grow together with epiphytes. That is a group of plants that are growing on other plants, but unlike parasites, they're not really taking energy from their sort of host, from the place they're living on. They're just using them as a sort of niche, as good growing conditions for them um, but they're not actually taking anything away from them for, from the metabolism and epiphytes that we find on land are a number of ferns bromeliads air plants and orchids um, that for example grow on tree trunks and tropical rainforests where the conditions are perfect for the orchid but they're not actually taking anything from the tree trunk um, in terms of energy to grow but the tree trunk provides the perfect environment for the orchid to survive and that is also what we see in seagrass there are epiphytes growing on seagrass obviously like with the seagrass it's not these big hunking orchid plants sitting on top of them but it's it's much smaller things so like little algae cyanobacteria like kind of these slimy green things that you would see like growing in the lake um in summertime and i actually tried to look at the materials and methods of this paper to find out what the different um epiphyte species were 
and they said it was mostly like brown and green algae and some diatoms, so like really small microscopic organisms. But they're then um, sort of growing together in this biofilms. So they're like this slimy layer on top of the the blade of the leaf. Um, and this, yeah, it like the different examples of, of biofilms can include things like the plaque that grows on your um, teeth. So those like bacteria. So it's like you can imagine there's just like slime that's that's on the outside of um, the leaf, which can have some problems as it turns out if you've got layers of slime on parts of you where you might not want layers of slime. Yeah, a leaf, if you think about it. Um, is very much dependent on some exchange with the surroundings. Um, I mean, I mentioned in land plants the stomata for gas exchange, and we talked about the fact that seagrasses also have to do gas exchange. So um, they have to get rid of oxygen, and they have to take in oxygen at different times during the day, um, and they also have to get in, for example, carbon dioxide for photosynthesis to happen. So um, they need some exchange with the environment, and they also need light. And if you now imagine a biofilm um, that sort of is in the way between the leaf and the light source from above, that changes the light that comes to the plant. It might just reduce the intensity a little bit, but it might also change the spectral composition. So it might absorb certain wavelengths that the plant usually would like to use for photosynthesis and now can't. Um, and so these two uh, effects, um, changing the light quality and changing um, the rate at which the, the leaf can exchange um, pretty much like compounds with its uh, with its environment. Um, these two things are uh, of of great interest, but not very well studied. So this is what the paper looks at: like how much does the thickness and density and composition of this biofilm change the conditions inside the seagrass leaf? Yeah, and you might kind of say, well, okay, there's seagrass leaves and there's things growing on them, but this is kind of the way of nature, right? Like things live on other living things. That's all part of the normal environment but as always there's a role for humans here in messing things up disturbing the kind of natural balance and that's basically the fact that we have um, caused this eutrophication effect where by um, using fertilizers and stuff on our fields which then wash into rivers and and uh, other water sources oceans um, you end up with too many nutrients in the water bodies and these can actually encourage growth of more algae than there should be which basically means that there's more of these little epiphytes on the seaweed and the seagrasses than there other sh otherwise should be. So basically there's this possibility that human activity is now strangling the seagrasses and making them gasp for air. So this is ex explains why there's an interest in these biofilms because, because we're changing them, because we're by adding nutrients to the coastal waters, we give the biofilms um, sort of more food to eat and so they can change in composition and grow more and there can be more biofilms on the seagrass we want to understand why like what happens to the seagrass when there is a certain kind of biofilm on it because if them it might be or um, that if there's too much biofilm then th that the seagrass communities will suffer and then that will lead to as we explained like damage to ecosystems and uh, coastal erosion um, and that's why it's very interesting to study the relationship and the effects of biofilms 
So the point of this research um, here is that the the authors basically wanted to use these special nanosensors to look at how the level of oxygen were different at different parts of the seagrass um, leaves and also how that changed in um, different conditions like daytime, nighttime, and also different conditions as far as like how much of these these films, like how thick the film was um, on the leaf. They used uh, Zostera marina, which is just um, a common seagrass. It's it's known as eelgrass. And they used, as we said, this very special nano sensors. So these were the um, magnetic optical sensor nanoparticles. And I have to say this bit kind of threw me a little bit. So I could understand the first part of it. So you have this optical oxygen sensor and that basically works that you have a special kind of dye which responds to light so you can like shine a light on it and it makes it exciting excited and by exciting it it then um gives sort of a um a visual indication and this dye is actually responsible responsive to oxygen in that oxygen kills the dye so the more oxygen you have um the faster the the luminance this this signal of light that's emitted is um the faster it gets uh, turned off basically um and also the less intense it is to start with so more oxygen less luminance um and using that you can find out the oxygen concentration but i actually i could understand that concept but i actually couldn't work out what the magnets were doing in the whole system. Yoram, did you did you see did you figure that out? My understanding of the magnet was that um because the leaf was placed sort of in between them so the nanoparticles were deposited on top of the leaf and then the magnet was below that it would sort of pull all of the particles onto the surface of the leaf and then they can't move any anymore. They can't diffuse away. Um, because they're so small so i that was my understanding of it because also they i imagine there has been some like turbidity in the water from the they they were providing the water with oxygen or not, uh, with no oxygen to mimic certain levels of oxygenation in the water um and to for for their measurements and uh, i imagine that this would have washed away the particles but with the magnet they could sort of hold them in place without actually touching them um and so they could do the me- measurements. That was my understanding of it. But to be honest, I also... Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely correct. So in the end, I actually went through the the previous paper, the paper that developed this technique to work out what the magnet... Because I thought maybe the magnets were actually involved in the the sensing of the oxygen to start with. But you're absolutely right. It's just to trap the sensors in the right place. Like, that's the role of the magnets. So... Yeah, well deduced there. I couldn't work it out and I had to go and look um, through the methods and then like through the original article that developed it. Yeah, I actually, as a little tale from my lab days, I actually enjoyed working with, whenever I could, with magnetic beads. There was like some steps in protein purification involved magnetic beads. And then it's so cool because you have like, um, in my case, it was like a brown solution because you have like all these iron particles that look sort of brownish. And then you put your tube next to a magnet and then within like 30 seconds they all cling to one side of the tube and then you can like wash them and then you remove it again you shake it and you have again this brown solution and you do that a couple of times and it okay, always so felt like magic to me so i i love working with magnets in the lab and in in your scenario the magnet had like an antibody on it that was then like grabbing onto a certain type of protein is that right yeah exactly it would okay. hold like some proteins and we Using that, I could pre- pretty much fish 
for proteins in my solution and um, sort of attach something big and heavy, a piece of metal to it. And then with a magnet, I could pull it out of solution. That was pretty much what I was doing. Okay, so similar. So yeah, here they're um, attaching this uh, like sort of light luminescing oxygen sensor to the magnet and then pulling it down into the seagrass leaf. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, very cool method. Um, okay, so what did they find, Yarm? They they found um, a couple of things. They found first of all that um, when there is uh, n nothing when uh, on the leaf, so they called it bare leaves, when there's no microfilm, no biofilm on it, um, then they had a higher oxygen evolution and more oxygen available in these leaves, so that they would make more oxygen and therefore there would also be more oxygen oxygen available to them. So. Mm -hmm. That already shows that the biofilms, they block some of the capacity of do of creating oxygen and of having oxygen available. Probably from, from shading the leaves, so they're not letting the light get through. That's what the authors thought. At, at the day when there is high light available... Um, Oh no! Actually, the, the one of the first things they did is when they they looked at like low light. So when there's not excess light, so what would happen on maybe a shaded day or maybe on the undergrowth when there's like other leaves in front of that that take away some of the energy. So um, when there's a little bit of light available to do photosynthesis, you would see a little bit of oxygen there. But it was the the levels what would be very low. They would be close to uh, anoxic conditions, which means like. Uh, abs complete absence of oxygen and um, suffocation conditions essentially um, and that was even stronger at night when there was no light so therefore no oxygen that was made in the in the leaves um, and that mean with a when there was a biofilm there could no oxygen from the water could go into the leaves so these were um, severely anoxic um, conditions and that was that was really uh, potentially dangerous to to the plant because there um, there was no respiration possible there, um, and the other problem that you have when you have these anoxic conditions is that um, you create an environment where certain types of bacteria. Uh, switch up their metabolism and they start creating toxic compounds so when there's no oxygen available they start making uh, they, they shift their metabolism and they start making yeah toxic things it's something that we see when we grow yeast like when we grow yeast in our bread and there's oxygen available it just like grows and makes co2 and puffs up the bread but when we put the yeast under anaerobic conditions so with no oxygen it starts making alcohol um, dun, dun, dun. and that is i mean we often do this on purpose we kind of like alcohol but alcohol is a toxic compound as it turns out mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and there's many other compounds that are much more dangerous than alcohol that can be made by bacteria when they have no oxygen available so um these conditions these like anoxic conditions in these biofilms they can potentially create or give give make micro environments that are very uh, that that can lead to dangerous compounds from bacteria yeah, so that's that's like kind of cool that, I mean, not cool for the seagrass, but yeah, when there's too much of a biofilm and the light is low, they struggle to get enough light to make enough photosynthesis to make enough oxygen and they're getting almost anoxic. But what I didn't expect is that there can also be problems when the light is high because then the seagrass does manage to photosynthesize a lot. It makes a lot of oxygen, but the oxygen can't get out of the leaf and like diffuse back into the water because it's been blocked by this slimy biofilm. And that might sound fine, but actually too much oxygen can also be a problem um, because, and we've talked about this before, oxygen itself can sort of block um 
photosynthesis from happening. So Rubisco, which is one of the main um, enzymes involved in fixing carbon, so, so making these nice sugars using carbon dioxide, it can sometimes get confused when there's too much oxygen around. And instead of doing this nice carbon fixing, it ends up making toxic byproducts within the plant, which then need to be detoxified. So yeah, this poor seagrass, it's suffering when it has um, not enough light because it doesn't get enough oxygen, but it can also suffer when it has too much light um, because too much oxygen then inhibits photosynthesis again. So it's basically lose-lose if the biofilm gets too thick. Yeah, and I think that's something important here. Um, the the relationship wasn't like an on-off relationship, what they observed. Um, it, was, it didn't mean that any existence of a biofilm would immediately lead to very dramatic um, situations. But um, the, the thickness of the biofilm had an impact. And obviously, the thicker the biofilm, the more problematic it was. But it also tells us that um, this could be interesting to monitor um, and yeah, to check on, on seagrass communities, what is the state of these biofilms? Are they like completely covered in them? And do we have to take some sort of measures to, to reduce that? Or is it sort of a, a healthy level of biofilm where it's not damaging yet um, and instead just like um, another biotope of diverse communities? Yeah, so the authors basically said this um, use of these magnetic, what is it, optical nano particles um, was a good way to kind of sense the oxygen conditions of the plant, which would give some indications about, you know, how healthy it's going to be and stay. But the cool thing is that there are also different microsensors, which can detect a, a huge broad range of molecules not just oxygen but also carbon dioxide also ph so how acidic it is um uh, nitrogen dioxide uh the redox potential how much light is getting through so they can use these um microsensors in different ways to to look at all these different biological relevant analytes in the plants and I don't know if we said it properly before, but the cool thing about this is what that, that they couldn't just do sort of point measurements, right? But they could do, I think, 2D um, measurements. So they could draw a, a sort of a map of the conditions that they were measuring, so of oxygen, across the entire leaf. Um, so if you imagine doing that for all of these other scenarios, that's, that's a pretty cool method. Um, yeah, and... Sort of the outlook, uh, uh, the outlook for this is that um, with um, the climate crisis, with growing heat waves and uh, oxygen de uh, ocean deoxygenation, which are predicted in some future climate scenarios, um, this problem of biofilms and and uh, health state of the seagrasses might get worse so it's a it's important to monitor that early on to not be suddenly surprised by a rapid die-off of seagrass communities in coastal areas so um in in that way that's uh, this paper was really or is it's a really important part in figuring out what what the state of the seagrass communities is yeah, so that was imaging oxygen dynamics and microenvironments in the seagrass leaf phylosphere with magnetic optical sensor nanoparticles, um, a journal that came out just a couple of weeks ago in the plant journal um, by Casper Elgetti, Broderson and colleagues. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins.
Yeah, um, fun, some fun stuff. I have to say, I struggled a little bit in finding good news this week. Um, but so that's why I'm starting with something that was very good news to me personally. Um, and it's a shameless self-plug. Uh, I did a thing between Christmas and New Year's Eve. Um, and I was giving a talk at a conference. And usually every year there is the Cars Communication Congress, which is a big convention of hackers and nerds of all sorts, like people who like tech and computers but also science and arts and um who are happy to hang around in like large crowds and in darkened areas with lots of led lights um but as you might imagine this event that usually takes place at a location in leipzig in germany um with like tens of thousands of people didn't happen this year with in a location with like thousands and thousands of people. Instead, it was a remote Congress. Um, so everything happened from home. And uh, I submitted a talk there and was taken. And so I talked about scientific literacy, um, a sort of an introductory lecture that I did on how to understand the scientific system, how to do, uh, like how to read scientific data and how, uh, yeah, like what to make of it, how to use that in your decision-making process when you come across some piece of science reporting, um, how should you react to it and sort of what gut feeling should you um, develop before like believing anything you read about science. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Like I, I pre-recorded the talk and then um, that was sort of streamed live to people and afterwards there was like half an hour of Q&A and that was a lot of fun and um, we're linking um, to the talk and also like I, I I collected a couple of sources that I based my talk on um, that are on my personal website and we're linking to that as well. So if you're interested in that or want to send this around to people, I mean, I guess if you if you are listening to this show, you already have a sort of good understanding of what science is like. Um, but if you still want to have a look at what I did there, um, yeah, you find the links to, to the talk there. And at this point, I want to thank you, Tegan, because um, you helped me a great lot. Uh, I had a very short deadline um, to produce these things. And um, so you were pretty much the only person I could send a, a review version to. And you gave, gave me like perfect uh, feedback to it that helped me so much to make it like to make it good, to make it um, to ah, bring it to point where i i'm actually like proud of it and actually happy about it um so yeah thank you Hooray. for that i think that segues really nicely into a a paper that i actually just came across today for some random reason um it was published in a journal called public understanding of science and i have to say i don't know this journal because it's um a little bit outside of our normal field um but it was published uh at the end of last month by Skolnick and Weisberg, and the title is Knowledge About the Nature of Science Increases Public Acceptance of Science Regardless of Identity Factors. So this is very much in line with your attempts to kind of explain to people how science works, because um, in the paper, the scientists do a test of 1,500 people in the US, and they ask them, you know, standard questions about how that much they accept evolution, climate change, vaccines, and other things. And they they find this normal discovery, which is which has been shown before, and that people's acceptance of science kind of correlates with other belief systems, so political belief and religious views. But they also found that understanding better how science works could help people then um, better accept 
scientific thinking. It sort of had a positive effect on moving this this acceptance of science forward. And this happened regardless of this these belief systems. So Yoram, you are doing great good in the world by trying to help people understand how, how science works as a whole. I think it's kind of a nice link there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, that, were, that was what I was aiming for. And something that I find when I see like political decisions, but also sort of person-to-person communication very often is especially something like uncertainty which i didn't talk at great length uh, with, about in during my talk there but something i want to do in the future like the idea of uncertainty is very different in science than, uh, than it is outside of science because when we say in science we don't know it doesn't mean that something is not true like now with the covid vaccine we don't have scientific certainty yet about the infectiousness of people like when they like we know when they get the vaccine that they don't get sick uh, from the from the virus anymore but we just don't know how infectious they still are but that doesn't mean that they are still infectious it just means we don't have enough solid data on it yet but in the public eye these two things get often mixed up they often think when researchers say we don't know means that this is not true but like we are just at the point as researchers we're not we're not confident of saying either way um definitively and that's why i think that's one big misunderstanding that very often emerges already yeah i think that's yeah this this idea of having absolutes is generally a problem for science and also a problem for the left you know it's, it's much easier to say it is so with strong convictions but such strong convictions can more easily be stated if they're like belief based than yeah. like when you have facts you always have sort of like well to the best of our knowledge and you know extensive research this is what is believed and known but like yeah we so often in biology we we have to be very uh, careful of never saying anything in absolute terms like if we say um, something like a major complex that's important for photo res- uh, for for respiration um that's really like at the core of respiration, we can't say that we find this in every plant that does respiration because then like some researcher comes along, looks at a weird mistletoe plant and finds <laughs> that they don't have this complex that is everywhere else. Um, so yeah. there's pretty much always an exception to whatever we're saying. But in the public eye, this this sort of uncertainty is is understood as something bad, as something like we don't know what's going on. It's just like we know that in 90% of the cases it's like this, but we also acknowledge that there might be cases where it's not like this. I like that you used, I like, as soon as you started saying that, I knew you were like the mistletoe. That's the example of this. Um, this is a discovery that one of our friends, along with another group, um, came across at the same time. And we've actually talked about it before on the podcast, I think around Christmas time last year, but we'll link that in as well. Um, but yeah, yeah. mistletoe is a big weirdo is the is a take home. Yeah. A lot of things in biology are big windows. I, I think I want to just use this moment to quickly segue into something else that I discovered yesterday. I think via the nature briefing, um, kind of related to being a scientist and, and, you know, the things you have to give up, like certainty. I recently found out that if I'm a climate scientist, I can become a climate czar at some point. Like, you know, like czar as in like the supreme sort of leader emperor king Um, (laughs) so in the u.s there's like a special presidential envoy for climate but this person is just consistently referred to as a climate czar and i i've always wanted to be king 
it's been quite hard for me to be king, especially as a woman. Whenever I say I want to be king, people say, oh, don't you mean queen? I say, no, I obviously don't mean queen. Queen is worse than king. And, you know, if you want to discuss that with me, we, we fight me because... I've had this discussion many times with many people, but now I found out I can be a czar. Um, I might have to be a US citizen. I might probably have to be born in the US. I haven't actually looked into that, but oh, the places I could go, Yoram. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm so excited. And one of these czars was um, Carol Browner. So it can happen for a woman as well. So don't come at me and say I'd have to be a czarina because I am not taking that crap. I'm going to be a czar. <laughs> Uh, yeah that i think we need more very fancy titles for high level science positions like director or president of something doesn't is not impressive enough we need like czar or emperor of biology and, and things like that <laughs> no i think i mean there's there's a very clear thing which is linked to what you just said is that like science is fallible and also the value should be in the science and not in the people who do the science like that's something that that's you know we shouldn't have heroes in science that the heroes should be the the scientific work and like you know well done scientific work not all that amazing yorum because <laughs> people are always fallible and always have their own biases so at the same time i have to say in in science you have so so many things that go against having a scientific career in terms of like money and recognition and 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 so on um having like a meaningless but impressive title i think would make up for some of that like you don't have job security for most of your career but at least you have a chance of becoming like god emperor of the biological <laughs> realm um god god emperor is pretty good i gotta say all right, what other facts are you bringing today? <laughs> Apart from my crazy ramblings, what have you got? <laughs> I, I found something about spiders that might um, create traps from plant leaves, and that's how it ties into like the topic of plants. So Geeky spiders. Yeah, some, some people like huntsman spiders, they discovered in, in um, some tropical forests, um, they discovered them inside leaves that are sort of sewn together with spider silk to create a pocket. Um and they were sitting in there, and it's weird. But um, then they also saw that the uh, at one in one occasion, unfortunately, only they they saw a spider eating a frog inside of this pocket. Um, it's unclear if it caught the frog in the pocket, but it could be imaginable that they make these pockets, and uh, these pockets create a sort of shaded, uh, humid environment that frogs really like. And so these huntsman spiders that usually um like they they do eat frogs from time to time but the frogs are bigger than the spider so it takes some effort to take them down for them so this could be a way that they trap them in there um when they go in inside the leaf to to get some shade and to get some like nice conditions then they sort of jump out out of a corner of this little leaf pocket and then attack the frog it can't escape and then they eat the frog um and that would be one of the first cases where they would um find like spiders crafting traps out of leaves um, to hunt. Um, so far, like there's not enough evidence that it's really a trap. It could also be that the spider itself just makes these pockets for shade. Like it makes its own little like cozy hangout space. Um, but it mm. could also be a trap because some other like um, spider scientists say mm. that um, in, in the tropical forest, there's usually enough places for spiders that, where they can hide that don't require them manufacturing um, a sort of leaf pocket. So, but 
this is all just high, like ideas and discussions and not not yet solid evidence um but it's pretty cool so in the article that we're linking um there's also pictures of these pockets um and a picture of a spider eating a frog um so yeah that i just like the idea uh, i not really like like the idea but i found it interesting and cool um how they bend these these things and then use the spider silk to sort of sew them together yeah i mean you're right. It, it sounds like the evidence that it's actually using the the leaves as a trap is is not super convincing so far. But it's it's already really cool that they make these shelters. Like that's yeah, that's cool and complex. That's yeah, pretty awesome. Um, yeah. And I mean, we have like in Australia, we have things like funnel web spiders, which kind of go into a hole, and the hole has like I mean, it's like one of the I think one of the worst spiders in the world, um, and. <laughs> they have like a funnel <laughs> so they have this kind of like um open collapsed tunnel at their doorway and i think that is also to trap yeah things so like spiders trapping animals is not uncommon i think i don't know enough about this topic i have to read more about spiders now this is amazing yeah i think i've also heard of some spiders that create like um yeah like tunnels or um, I mean, like, specific- obviously they love traps. Like, a web is entirety a trap. Like, yeah. honestly, that's their jam. But, like, are they also doing it with leaves as well as, like, earth structures? And especially Possibly. for, like, big animals, like like dogs. Uh, dogs. <laughs> <laughs> like dogs. <laughs> Should we be scared? <laughs> I'm, from, I'm bigger from, than a dog, but I'm not a lot bigger than a dog. <laughs> How concerned frogs to dogs. Um, yeah, no, but for, for like, these, these yeah. frogs... Um, that would be like interesting because that yeah catching other insects catching other like smaller prey there's definitely many spiders that make traps just like for any of you at home who do have arachnophobia i should mention these are quite small frogs so like these are not like no not toads like (laughs) they're not huge freaking it's not a threat to you or your family it's a small spider (laughs) you're fine although i mean there are venomous spiders that are very small um and they could still take down a human like, I mean, Australia has a lot of, like, kind of bitey spiders, but I think not a lot of people die of spider vi- bites because we have, like, the, the anti-venoms now. Yeah. I think spiders actually are not a huge threat, at least in Australia. I'm going to, like, touch some wood or, like, I mean, whatever the scientific version is, like, do not cite me on that, guys. But <laughs> yes. I'll be like, I think it's- oh, I'm safe from spider bites now. I heard that on a plant podcast. No, you know the worst <laughs> thing that's going to happen is that you're going to turn into some sort of mutant and like shoot spider web from your hands, wrists. I don't know. I mean, does he? Does Spider Man actually do that, or is that like a little? Um- I, 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 I'm not an expert in Spider Man, but I think it depends. And like, like there's several tales of the story, and I know in some of them, Tony Stark makes him like a little device that shoots the spider web. But yeah. uh, I know from like other um, comic stories that he can, can sort of do it on his own without getting technology to do that. And then I don't know, like, then he must have like some little. Um, he has some sort of gland then where he's yeah. making that silk, right? Like he's got something where he's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's like if you think about Spider Man, it, it gets weird on a physical level. There are I mean, definitely questions. Yeah. There's some yeah. some questions, some concerns I have. I mean, in one of the movies, you can see how he gets like these little like microscopic spikes out of his fingertips that help him to hold onto stuff. That's how he can climb. But then for the rest of the That's movie, like he wears gloves. Man, Gecko Man. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> like, they give an explanation, but they immediately sort of destroy it by having him wear gloves that would 
cover the the microscopic spike. Well, I did I did watch the the Spider Verse, the newish yeah. film on my um, prolonged slumping in front of the television. It's at such the a break. good movie, I love it. Um, fun times, uh, but he did have a lot of problem where he couldn't unstick. So he like the little gecko hands were causing issues because he would just get stuck. So maybe like that's what the gloves are for because he couldn't control the gecko hands. Yeah, but then how how to gecko? Then he must have like super gloves. And then the the question is like, could anybody who wears the gloves climb walls as well? Because, like personally, I can't do a single pull up, so I would say no. I could like hang precariously until my shoulder came out of the socket, but I couldn't actually like <laughs> lift myself up and like this is. There's a lot of working out involved there. That's a very good point. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Do we have a plant fact, or should we? I mean, we can continue discussing Spider Man. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to use this this opportunity of discussing spiders and maybe what spiders eat to segue into the topic of moths. Um, so <laughs> this is a study that I found again today. Uh, because I do all of my research for this podcast last minute. Um, in Scientific Reports, it was published a couple of weeks ago at the end of December. It's by Stephenson and colleagues, and it's called 2,000-Year-Old Bogong Moth. So it's Agrotus infusa is a species. Aboriginal food remains, Australia. Um, so basically they have found um, examples of moths which have been eaten, um, which uh, are from a very long time ago, so 2,000 years ago. So they found um, archaeological evidence um, of these moths being, I think, cooked in a pot. I think they found it um, like at the bottom of a stone or like pot in any case very nice evidence that these were being eaten 2000 years ago and you might say why eat moths apart from the obvious fact that eventually we're all going to be eating a lot of insects simply because you know eating meat and cows is not super sustainable um but as it turns out these moths are are actually kind of cool so bogong moths um estivate do you know what estivation is no i have no idea they go east <laughs> I mean, almost. Like, if the caves are where East is, then that would be correct. They they kind of go into cool caves. Estivation is just... I'm probably saying it wrong, but um, it's A-E-stivation. Estivation. It's hibernating, but when it's too hot. So, in Australia, not a lot of hibernation happening because it's not that cold. So, instead, things have to, like, hide out in the summer months. And these moths go and basically migrate into huge caves and just hang out there um, through October to March, I think, so like in the hot months, so that they don't die from getting too hot. Um, which is great for people who want to eat moths because you can just go into the caves and basically just like, I guess, scrape them off a wall into a pot or something. Like there's just a ton of them all lining the cave walls. Um, I'll try and link some, some photos in here. But obviously moths don't sound super tasty, but as you can imagine with most creatures, before they go in for this long hibernation sleeping, they tend to make sure they have a lot of resources. So they completely fatten themselves up before they do this estivation. So you've got a moth, which might be a little bit furry on the outside, but it's got like a huge amount of its body mass as lipids or as fats, um, which then makes it actually very nutritional. So <laughs> you can't no? see because we had to turn off the video, but I'm pulling faces of disgust for the last five minutes. It's like just the thought of like going into a cave 
scraping off fat moths from the walls and cooking them and then oh no no I, I, I mean I'm saying that now as like a well fed man in, in like a co cozy home but I'd rather die than, than, than do that uh, I mean firstly clearly you would die in Australia that's not even yeah. a question and I mean like in current Australia um, but apparently this is I mean I should mention I've, I've kind of glossed over it here but it's not just a an important nutritional source there was also like I think a festival where different um, Aboriginal tribes came together as part of this like gathering of the moths um, so it's like quite significant as far as um, cultural exchange between different groups of people as well um, but yeah I don't know I'm imagining it as kind of like buttery flavored like you would cook it down a little bit to get the fur off and then like little yeah, yeah. no no I'm I'm my, my stance on insects for food is as long as you tell me that there's insects in there I will not touch it and I know that this is um like like there's good reasons to eat insects um but like if you if you like make insect powder give it like a fancy brand name and mix that into some processed foods i will be fine like i will i will definitely eat like a burger at a at like a chain restaurant um when they say like we have our new like meat free patties and 50% of that is like our no new fancy protein and it's actually from like worms or whatever um i'd be fine with that as long as they don't like put the worm on the packaging and keep some of the worms in there for shape and so on because then i will not touch it like hide it from me then it's fine um and so if it, if it if coming together for a festival that's all about eating the moths then i'm sorry i i'd rather eat some leafy vegetables which okay again so firstly i think you're misunderstanding this because it's very fatty so i'm imagining again a kind of nice moth spread and i think you're not appreciating that like creamy texture that if you, you might tell find me it's moth it. spread i'm not eating it if you tell me <laughs> this is a new like meat free buttery spread that's really tasty i will try it as soon as you mention the word moth i will not try it anymore that's my whole I'm point thinking, like moth pate that's how i'm kind of if you call imagining. it pate yes if you call it moth pate no that suggests to me that you're a snob like you're happy to no, eat the liver yeah i mean yes <laughs> i'm happy to eat like very like cruel like stuffed liver um because it's not an insect I know this is like a very personal choice and it's like very hi uh, hypocritical in many ways, but it's my choice. Don't tell me it's insect, then I'll eat it. <laughs> I'm trying to find that. I've been trying to look for the fact about how much um, lipids, like how much fatty content they have and I can't find it. I saw it before, but they're um, they're hibernating for four months. So they, they've got to be pretty much pure fat to start with. Um, but... I also found a recipe for um, <laughs> baking them into damper, which is basically an Australian like basic bread that you can cook over a fire. And it's it's a very simple recipe. One cup plain flour, one cup self-raising flour, one cup of powdered milk, one quarter of teaspoon of raising agent, a little bit of water and a generous handful of moths. <laughs> you do have to um, pound up the moths using a mortar and pestle or i guess whatever you have on on hand um no thank yeah. you 
anyway, I think I think it's really cool, and I think this is like one of those awesome adaptation things where you know the animals have to escape from the heat, so they have to go to the caves for four months, um, and the people are like, hey, these animals they're really really fatty, so this is a very important nutritional source for us. like this is a nice this is clever on everybody's part, right? This is like evolutionary cleverness. Yeah. I'd still rather like to eat fatty plants. Um, and that segues into a paper that I found <laughs> <laughs> where um, researchers managed to, in Arabidopsis for now, um, which is not the most important crop plant, I think, um, they managed to uh, make Arabidopsis store a lot more lipids in its leaves so you could harvest the leaves and extract lipids from it and you would get much more plant fat um like oil essentially like vegetable oil uh, you would find that in the leaves and i did that using my favorite tool in the world crispr um they've there are like three sort of stop what's the word like stop gaps like points that like stop metabolism at a certain point that are active in leaves but not that. active in in seeds so that's why the seeds they make the oil but the leaves they don't accumulate the oil and so with crispr they they destroyed these like three blocking points um and that led to much more fatty acid or like um actual um tree acyl glycerol content so that's oil content in the leaves and i mean this is in a model organism in a scientific study so don't get your hopes up for like spinach that's very oily and fatty so you don't have to add butter to your spinach um but potentially it could be used in in crops um potentially you could also imagine like having crops like soybean where you harvest the beans and you Mm -hmm. pretty much throw away most of the leafy parts of it um it could become a dual use crop by um also using the same approach and having it accumulate oils in the leaves and then you can harvest um the pods with the soybeans and then you can also harvest the leaves and extract the oil and have a source of vegetable oil there as well um this is sort of the main idea which has some problems i mean we we've um in in plant science we often talk about like source and sink so the source is where the plant makes the energy. The sink is where it spends the energy and it only has so much energy to spend. So if it ca- if it suddenly makes spends a lot of energy on making oil in the leaves, it doesn't have as much energy available to put in the fruit or seeds or whatever we want to harvest from the plant. So it, in the end, it could sort of be a zero-sum game where um, the, the grain gets smaller, but we have more oil in the leaves, but in certain conditions that might be still useful. So it's, it's, it's Mm. cool that I managed to do that. Um, I have something that's a plant fact. Um, it's a little bit older research, but I just found out about it sometime at the end of last year. So it's a publication that came out in May, June, July, something like that, 2019, um, in Phytobiomes Journal by Morella and colleagues. And it's looking at how, um, certain types of bacteria are passed down from parents to their children in plants. So they were looking at um, the bacteria that were associated with tomato seeds. So as you probably know, when you have a seed from a plant, it's actually not sterile. It has all of these these different like microorganisms attached to it. And they found that some of these, again, epiphytes, so these bacteria, these microbiomes that grow on the seeds, that live on the seeds, um, can actually help protect the tomato seedlings as they develop from 
other um, bacteria or pathogens. So they they basically took tomato seeds and they sterilized them. And for some of them, they added back the the original bacteria which had been found on the the seeds before they had been sterilized and the other ones they kept them completely sterile and they found that the ones that had the the microbial communities added back actually had better protection against um pseudomonas syringae so this is kind of a a normal um uh like in fact like bacterial infection that um is found yeah. in, in like crops or wherever like It's yeah, a it's, it's a really disease. common. Yeah, it's a common one that we use in the lab. So it's one of these like lab rats for infection. Um, and what I found really interesting was that they added these these microbial communities back, but they didn't find that the more of the microbial community they added, the better the tomato plants did against the pseudomonas. There was actually kind of um, it wasn't like a linear increase. In fact, there was a certain concentration that had the best response so if you put too much on things got worse again it didn't it didn't keep mm -hmm. getting better and this this correct amount the the most protective dose was actually corresponding to the same amount that they originally had found in the seeds before they had sterilized them so basically the the tomato plant ends up the seeds end up with the amount the right amount of protective bacteria to give the ultimate protection against the pseudomonas oh, and obviously cool. this is like yeah it's like a lab experiment and it's with with one sort of lab strain of the pathogen the pseudomonas but it's it's kind of nice right it's yeah sweet. i and i mean this this idea of trans transferring microbiomes from parent to child is something that's like in, in humans discussed quite a lot uh, yeah. what it does for immunity or doesn't do for immunity like it's a it's a big part of research i never thought about like following the same idea in in plant science it's really cool yeah i think like definitely understanding microbiomes and um yeah this kind of sphere like what we're talking about in the paper today this idea that an organism is never existing by itself it's like hollow biont so it has not only the individual like the human but also all of the the gross things living on and around it like the importance of these these gross things um for our health and for all organisms health is is becoming like just increasing every day as as a sort of scientific field like really fascinating stuff happening i think yeah yeah true um, really cool, and also I, I like what what you said in the end about that they had the right amount. It's it's again one of these these traces we see of evolution, right? Like they, it's not that like by some lucky coincidence they end up with the right amount. It's just like a process that's optimized from several ends to be the most efficient because that's when you have the most success in in survival, and therefore the ones that had the like that managed to to keep the perfect amount of of bacteria alive or they adapt to whatever amount was left and they adapted to make the most of it um that they were the most successful later on in 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 life so i quite like that as well whenever we find these sort of observations yeah um, I, I have something that's from my, my personal category of no Sherlock. Um, and now I have to <laughs> censor myself here. Um, but uh, I found an article when I was re researching some fun stories uh, from the BBC, from the science part, where they talked about a study um, that was recently done, where they found out, to a big surprise, that it's cheaper to prevent a pandemic than to cure it. Um, 
And in this document, I think it was like a joint document from the United Nations and some other like major uh, organizations um, from like the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES, um, together with the United Nations. Um, I know it's like this is the organization that's established by the United Nations to get it right. But so, yeah, a, a big official study and they looked at uh, how much the current COVID pandemic would cost, how much uh, it would cost to prevent such pandemics in the future. And um, it's like several orders of magnitude in different. I think it's like 100 times more expensive to deal with a pandemic than to prevent it. Um even in the in the in the long run, so it's around like twenty two billion to thirty one billion dollars per year that you have to spend on many different measures to avoid um, the the to, uh, the transmission from like viruses in animals to humans, um, or when it happens to very quickly react. So you have to spend a lot of money on that, but that's nothing compared to the sixteen trillion dollars that it will cost to deal with the current pandemic, um, and I. I guess you've got that uncertainty thing again coming up. Like, we don't know there will be a pandemic. Like, it's this thing where you're successful if you never find out, basically. You know, yeah, by, by preventing it, you never find out what the cost would have been. But then it's really hard to justify that cost because it never happened. Yeah, there's this this saying of there's no glory in prevention, right? Um, because you're putting people through trouble for pre doing prevented, preventative measures but then they don't experience the bad stuff. I mean, it's what we see with vaccinations. Like people don't get measles and die from it anymore or not at like high rates. So people start to doubt the measles vaccine um, because they don't see the suffering that, we, that we're avoiding. And so if we would yeah. for 50 years spend the money on um, avoiding pandemics, people would start to be like, hey, we didn't have a pandemic in 50 years. Maybe we can stop the measures. Um, uh, although they say like um, that, like in this report, they say that 70% of new diseases like Ebola, Zika and almost no all known pathogens um, such as influenza, HIV and the coronavirus had their origins in animals. So mm -hmm. there is... Kill all the animals, keep <laughs> only plants. Is that, the, is that the solution you're saying? No, you their solution is like... It's, to, it's to really... It's extreme. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect you to go with that approach, but sure. Yeah, no, they, they say, like, we have to tackle things like um, uh, markets that deal with wild meat. We have to um, change our way we interact with wild animals, like how close we interact with them. We have to change the way we like our diets so that more people can have access um, to pro like non-animal protein or to like if everybody eats a little bit less meat more people can eat meat sort of w without raising the production levels, right? Um, this idea so that they don't have to go and eat bush meat when they can get sort of safe pig meat. Um, but if we can't produce enough pigs because everybody's eating a lot of pigs, then people will go into like uh, into forests and, and start to hunt there and potentially be exposed to these, these, these viruses and these diseases. Um, and there's like, the measures are quite complicated. That's why they're so, so uh, expensive. And there's uh, quite a lot of things that would have, would need to be done, but still, even with like this very complex and expensive approach, it would still be cheaper than what we're dealing with right now. Um, and they say that in, in the future, in, they, they project that this would happen more often because um, of the way humans spread into habitats of animals and suddenly get in closer contact with certain types of animals that, that are these like 
basins for for diseases um, that have the potential to jump over to humans and then create the next bad like global pandemic um mm. and i mean this this is like it's always good to have these these research this type of research done because it helps in in arguments but at the same time like I wonder why it's still an open question. Like it's almost always better to to do prevention than to do like damage control. And we see that with climate crisis, we see that now in the pandemic, we see that with vaccinations, we see that so often and still we have to do this research again and again to convince some people that yes, it's cheaper if we spend some money now because if we don't spend some money now, we will spend a lot of money later when we deal with the problems. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. It has to be, unfortunately, always put into economic terms. Um, yeah. When, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I have some other... I have some issues with some of these things as well. Like, the question of the wild meat is always something which I'm... Yeah, sure. Like, it's... it's, it's I'm not sure about the it's something that has the potential of bringing like some cultural prejudice, right? That, that some people yeah, absolutely. like with like easy access to whatever they want to eat and being like, Oh, in this other country, yeah, but these also people, people have who to stop like, their way. Those people eating. are like hoffing their way through like a pork burger every day and contributing to, you know, like that's like our meat industry is horrible, terrible. Yeah. Anyway, different, different argument for a different time. Anyway, yes, it is. <laughs> It's the kind of expected result. It's disappointing that it has to be spelled out, um, but hopefully there will be lessons learned. Yeah. And I mean, this is... When I read the, the title of this, I, I was thinking they were talking about something like still already much later in um, uh, in sort of the, the infection chain. I didn't think they would talk about like the when it jumps from animals to humans, but being prepared and sort of having the infrastructure ready when a pandemic um, might hit you or having people wear masks because that prevents it um, instead of going to the intensive care where then where you deal with the consequences of it. Um, so that was where I would, thought this would go, but it's also like they actually thought of sort of patient zero, how to avoid patient zero or how to deal with patient zero um, before we have to even think about how to deal with like an emerging, emerging pandemic in a society. Uh, I have like a silly thing which actually follows up from something that I think Yoram you've talked about before on the podcast. Um, somebody sent me a tweet from at the Gallo Boob <laughs> Rub and Roll, which is a reference to a study called Scientists. Um, not called, but they they mentioned that scientists have recently discovered that rats love driving tiny cars. And when I was sent this, I was like, yeah, we know this. Like, this has been shown months and months ago. And I, as I said, I think, Yoram, you talked about this. Yeah. But previously when the rats were driving the tiny cars, which, I mean, this is a, t a tiny car that's basically a plastic juice container with a rat inside it on wheels. And the rat can, like, poke at different kind of, not even buttons. It's like wires to steer the car in one direction or the other. And I think in the previous experiment that Yoram was discussing, they the rats would steer their way to the food source um, and they would get treats. But now they've found out that the rats like driving the cars even when they don't get treats. So the new finding <laughs> is that like rats just like cruising. Um, <laughs> I was a bit like, my first reaction was, this is hilarious and what I need for the end of 2020. But at the same time, 
how is it that we're not funding plant research when we're funding rats driving car research? <laughs> but of course, um, as it often is with science, this was not just about understanding if rats like to drive cars, but it was looking at um, different reward systems. So somebody else commented saying that they were showing that doing the complex task could help to decrease the stress levels of the rats. Um, so they were getting a reward in like stress reduction from doing something, you know, like working with your hands, which we've, we've discussed before, like working with your hands is it's a good stress relief. So although there wasn't a food reward, there was like a mental reward. Which yeah, I thought it was funded by Uber or something because they wanted to have cheaper drivers, and I realized, oh yeah, rats actually enjoy driving, so we just have to like create a car where you have a rat in the driver's seat, and they're picking you up from the airport and driving you somewhere because it's cheaper. I mean, I think there's also like it's like linked to our lockdown situation of like you don't just need the food reward. Like sometimes doing something with your hands can be a good reward, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if the take-home message is like. I should do something with my hands or if I should get a rat and watch him do something with his hands. Like I didn't, I'm not sure what would give me more joy. Like obviously I like doing things with my hands, but like maybe watching the rat would be more fun. (laughs) If anyone could hook me up with like a rat in a tiny car, please. (laughs) I have a cat, but let's be honest, the cat would be terrified if there was a rat in a tiny car. She would not harm that rat. Maybe you can have a tiny car for the cat. And then it could like lie about and just she is would be scared of that. <laughs> she is not a brave cat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some cats that ride Roombas and some cats that hide from Roombas. There's like the two kinds. Like my my cats hide from Roombas. My cat has been known to hide from a moth, so I'm not. Gonna <laughs> 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 She's not the cat for the experiment. Like you got to choose your experimental, um, like guinea pig or lab rat or lab cat. <laughs> properly and my cat is not the one yeah so that's that's all my facts that i have today i just have one cat fact do you have something that you want to tell us before we move on Nah, go for it cat fact and um yeah my cat fact today is a short one um i found i think also on the bbc it's a zoo in nicaragua um that shows off their white tiger cub um, that was born there and it, it is um, raised by the zoo director's wife uh, like it sounds like in a, in a children's book in a tale um, then that the zoo director comes home and is like oh, who could take care of this tiger and then the wife's like I could do it and then she <laughs> they become best friends but yeah it's just a short video where you see like a tiny little white tiger cub being bottle fed and it just looks really cute and I think we can all use that right now <laughs> having a little um tiger cup that that doesn't even open its eyes yet um being bottle fed and looking all cozy definitely a good thing to do in in 2021 spend a significant amount of your time looking at various types of cat yeah yeah it's also my like <laughs> i used to share like like bad news and and memes and, and terrible stuff with a friend of mine um and for this year, we're just sharing like positive, cute cat stories and, and cat memes and cat pictures, and because we we just can't anymore. <laughs> like it's it's too much. We can't be cynical anymore. We can't be like edgy and dark. It's like the world is too bad. Um, we we need cat comfort. Sorry, I just got distracted. Sorry, you can put an edit mark here. I just got distracted because I found the actual study. 
Oh, so it actually wasn't about relaxation. Okay, I think we need to include this in. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm actually going to the article now because I didn't have time to get through it before. Um, so basically they were giving different rats different environments to grow up in and some had standard houses and some had like enriched houses. So they had like more, um, like better environments. And apparently the ones that had the better, like the more enriched environments were then better at learning to drive. So it was about like that instead. Okay. But they also did have increased corticosteroid and something else, which might be suggesting, yeah, emotional resilience. Driving training. Yeah, it is. Driving training, regardless of housing groups, so regardless of the environment, enhanced markers of emotional resilience. So they they were getting emotionally resilient from driving around in cars. This is like... <laughs> so, importance of enriched environments and preparing animals to engage in complex behavior skills, but also something about <laughs> emotional resilience. Which is apparently relative, relevant for neurogenerative disease and psychiatric illness. This is really, this is amazing. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to cut that in or not. Because <laughs> I think what I said was a bit wrong before. I will just like leave that in as an explanation of, of, of what's really going on. I recommend everybody go look at the uh, paper that we're linking. Um, because it also has images and videos off um the cats in their little like makeshift cars the rats the rats and uh, the rats yeah the rats in the cars yeah it's I, just playing it, now from my speakers i i hope it didn't pick up too badly on the microphone but i mean there was a very short drive like a cat gets in the car and then totals rat, it a rat you're a rat <laughs> the, the rat the rat goes in the car and immediately totals the car by going into a wall at full speed um, is that what they mean by extinction? I'm not really sure if I understand this terminology. Is the extinction that they crash the car? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not really convinced. Like, looking at this video, I'm not super convinced the rat is driving the car. It's more like crashing the car into a wall. I mean, there's one one video where it definitely is st steering because it's um like changing direction from time to yeah, time. Yeah, because it crashes into the wrong wall and then it changes direction and crashes into the right wall. Yeah, they have like a, a checkboard um that is the target and so the, the, the rats orient the car until they're facing the thing and then they're going forward at full speed and crash into it so they get the reward. And then they get the treat. I would say that this is 58 seconds of pure joy so definitely yeah, yeah go, and, go and watch for rats. I mean, if I would have a pet rat, I would immediately build it a car and get it, like, trained in a maze. And then... <laughs> I mean, this is so wow. cool. It's like, it's just bouncing around. Like, um, I would I would like to have a live cam to their experiment site where I can just watch them whenever they put it. Like, I get a notification on my phone. It's like, it's rat driving time. And then um, I would just watch them. Um, they would not even would, have to explain like to, to me what's happening. They would just be like putting rats in cars and being like having them drive crash into the wall. Okay, um, that's it. We're done for today. Um, before we head off today, I do want to mention that we recorded just before the Christmas break another episode of the Plant Book Club, which is run by our friend Ellen Earhart. So there's a new episode of that out. Um. We talk about a very popular book by Hope Yaron, which is called Lab Girl. Um, so if you've read that or even if you haven't read that, go hear us talk about that. 
And we were very lucky this time because we didn't just have me and Yoram and Ellen, but we also also had two of our friends from Instagram, Melissa and Judith. And together with one other person, they form Flora.l. So it's this amazing um, company which designs fabric and fabric um, products, which use the images, like microscopic images of plants. So, you know, cell structures and... Um, like isolated um, plant cells, all these really amazing things. We'll put the link. You should definitely go and check out their Instagram and their website. And I personally bought some of their material and some also like tea towels that they had made from this material to give as Christmas gifts and to make some secret things for myself. Um, So they are very cool. They were also really nice to talk to um, and get like a different, some different voices and different perspective in there as well. So Go and listen to that. And we're not sponsored by them. Uh, we just really like what they're doing. I'm just, I'm just super enthusiastic. Here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, like, we didn't know them beforehand. Um, we, f- I saw their stuff on Instagram and was like, this is such a cool idea. Why has nobody done this before? Um, and they've done it. They've put beautiful plant images onto material and this combines two of my great loves. So, yeah. Yay to them. Yeah, and I think with that, uh, it's it's time to ask you to go to all of our social media profiles um, and like us and follow us and subscribe and whatever. On Twitter, you can find me. That's at Plants <laughs> And when you do it, try to be a little bit more enthusiastic than Yarn was just there. <laughs> How do you subscribe enthusiastically? I mean... Like, I smashed that button so hard that I caused my iPhone to spin out of my hand and smash on the floor. Um, <laughs> Please don't do that. Like I would like our like because if they do that they can't see what we're writing on the social media. So please keep your phones intact so you can see all of our wisdom oh and don't miss any um, facts. <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook we're at Plants and Pipettes. It's usually me who's posting there, so you can come and chat with me. Um, we have a website uh, plantsandpipettes.com where we publish uh, new stories about uh, plant science. Um, a few every week. Uh, there you also find the podcast and much more information. Yeah. And on Twitter, Yoram? Uh, we or- I already said that. It's plants uh, at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. Um, oh, the internet section is terrible today. <laughs> yeah, leave, leave, leave feedback and, and, and comments on the website or on social media. That's always really nice. Tell your friends. Um, and yeah, have a, have a good year. I mean, this is the first episode of the year. Have a good year. I, we wish you all the best. This year will be better than last year. I'm, I'm quite sure. Um, See you later, guys. uh, Opening and closing music, Caravana by Fred Cross. As always, goodbye.